Um, now, if I asked you, you had your Bibles there with you, if I asked you to open up your Bibles quickly to the book of Nahum, you might get a little panicky at this moment. Um, that is, unless you have your cell phone and you just enter the name Nahum in, then you can find that very quickly. But if I encourage you to look to the book of Psalms, that's not quite so scary, because when you take it, it's pretty much right to the middle, and it's 150 chapters long, so you're probably going to find your way there, starting for today and for the next number of weeks in the summer you are going to be hearing some messages from the Psalms. The Psalms are God's gift to us, training us in prayer. That's what they are. John Calvin said, the Psalms are the anatomy of all the parts of the soul. They deal with the full range of our emotions in life. These prayers are honest prayers. They do not have the intention to make us look good. But they help us to deal with the reality of who we really are and who God really is. So go to the Psalms when you are upbeat and when everything's right. And you can sing your song of praise. Sing laments in the, from the Psalms when your life seems to crumble and when you are frightened, you can find your confidence here. The Psalms really go from, from highest joy to the deepest grief. Some are short. Psalm 117 is just two verses long. Some are long. Psalm 119 is 176 verses. Many of the Psalms were written by David, but there are a variety of authors to the Psalms. And it was written over a time span of 1,000 years. Imagine that, just that one small book in the Bible written over that long time span because you know that one of the Psalms, Psalm 90, was written by Moses. And then we have some other Psalms like Psalm 126, which was written well uh, after the exile. So we have this time span of 1,000 years but this book was collated, put together as this guidebook for prayers for us. Some songs are a psalm of thanksgiving. Like this, give thanks to the Lord. For he is good, his love endures forever, Psalm 136. Or others are like hymns, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. Um, or summer songs of confidence, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing, I shall not want. And others are laments, Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, how long, will you forget me forever? Guess which form of the Psalms are the most common? Guess which stream or strand of the Psalms are the most common? Any guesses? It's the laments. It's that one. The laments. Lord, will you forget me forever? Lord, all my enemies are piled up against me. Or darkness is my closest friend. Those are the most common Psalms that you're going to find as you flip through the pages. Um, someone said, I only pray when I'm in trouble. 
but I'm in trouble all the time, so I pray all the time. That's the Psalms. You may find it helpful, though, to note that the last seven Psalms are hymns of praise. The Psalms are a movement of prayer that guide us through every season. But then when we come to those last seven Psalms, it's like staccato bursts, punch after punch, movement after movement that ends with the words in Psalm 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It concludes on this magnificent note of praise. But this morning, I want us to explore Psalm 1 and 2, which are often considered to be the gateway to the Psalms. They are like the pre-prayers that get us ready for prayer. It's these two Psalms that are considered an entryway to the Psalms. And I want us to look at both of them side by side. And here's the big idea. Psalm 1 is a quiet psalm. We're going to read it. Um, Angie's going to come up and read it. Psalm 1 is quiet. It stills our distracted hearts. But Psalm 2 is vigorous. It counters a bullying world and a world full of bullies. And we need both of these words. So Angie, come on up. Let's read. And you're going to hear Psalm 1, first of all. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Thanks, Angie. So Pastor Richard has just concluded a sermon, a series on the search for happiness But the first word of the Psalms is blessed or happy. It talks about the happy life, this joyful life. And basically it says the happy life is never to be found in the way of sinners. This self-seeking life that's turned inward on oneself will go nowhere and lead nowhere good. Verse 1 and then also carrying over to verses 5 and 6. There are two ways, there are two paths. There are two destinies, but the way of the righteous is always leading to God. You and I were made for something more. Look at verse 2. You and I were made to meditate. Isn't that something? Who you are? You were made to meditate. It's rather intriguing that the only distinction in this very first psalm between the righteous and the wicked The good and the bad, 
The God-seeking and the self-seeking, the only difference is the one action of meditating on God's word. Listen to the description of the, of the righteous with its poetic style of parallelism in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You were designed with the capacity to pause and wonder, not just to hear, but to reflect, to consider, to ruminate. The Hebrew word is hagah, and it means this low muttering sound. It involves the idea of repetition. The writer of Psalm 1 was convinced of this idea. Whatever shapes your thinking shapes your heart. Do you get that? Whatever shapes your thinking shapes your heart. Some of us meditate on the movies that we watch. Okay? So get this. Magic mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest of them all? What movie is that? You all know that. You memorize that. Uh, how about this? Yo, Adrian. Movie? Rocky. How did you know that? You memorized that. How about this? Go ahead. Make my day. Who's, who's the actor in that one? Clint. You know that. You memorized that. Okay. That was actually the movie. Does anybody know the movie when he said that? Sudden Impact. 1983. Clint Eastwood. Okay, so get this one now. Here it is. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. What movie? Star Wars. 1977. The first one. Okay, how about this one? Can you restart repeating it after me if you know the words? You is kind. You is smart. You is important. How did you memorize that? That was the help, 2011. How about this one? Going back to 1946, but I bet you still, some of you still have this. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. It's a wonderful life, 1946. You had that memorized. How about this? Mowage. Anybody know that? The Princess Bride. I said one word. Marriage is what brings us together. <laughs> Nolan and uh, actually my son and future daughter-in-law are here, and uh, I'll be officiating their wedding in just a few weeks now. And uh, get ready. That'll be the very first word. Marriage. <laughs> the movie... The Princess Bride, 1987. How did you memorize all these things? See, you have a capacity to wonder. You have a capacity to reflect, to think, to ponder. And, and have you ever talked with people who have a whole movie memorized? They just recite every movie line and they walk through it. It's uncanny how much people can memorize. Christian meditation Christian reflection, Christian pondering, Psalm 1, verses 2 and 3. This is not just emptying ourselves, but filling ourselves with God. So meditation is a way of reflecting on what God says, to repeat it, to rehearse it, to mutter it, to carry it with you. Dallas Willard recommends that one of the best ways you can carry Scripture with you is to memorize it. 
You can memorize Scripture. I believe that. Don't be afraid of this. The question is not, will you meditate? But the question is, what will you meditate on? Joshua 1.8 Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. This call, what do we meditate on? Meditate on this book of the law day and night. God's words to us. Meditate on these things. Colossians 3.16 includes this little phrase, let the message or let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it take root. How else does that happen? By meditating, by muttering, by repeating this. Somebody said this, if you can worry, how many of you can worry? If you can worry, you can meditate. You see, it's just flipping meditation around, flipping the worry around in another way to say, I'm going to keep thinking about God's goodness in this situation. I'm going to keep pondering on that. You're meditating either on your troubles or you can meditate on God's promises. So the writer of the Psalms has a very practical suggestion of how to meditate. And here it is in verse 3, Psalm 1-3. Go find yourself a tree, sit in front of it, and look at it carefully. And start asking yourselves questions as you're looking at this tree. Ask yourself, where does this tree get its sustenance from? Where is it nourished? The tree is near a stream of water. And in a semi-arid climate, a tree has to be near water to survive. We may love the heat of summer. Farmers need the sun to, to ripen the fruit. We need the sun to turn those tomatoes red. I have some green tomatoes right now, but we need the sun to turn it red. But as beautiful as the sun is, it's also threatening. It can make the foliage wither. So there is an important need for water and staying near it. Psalm 1 tells about two ways. One way is the path of the unrighteous. That takes up company with mockers and cynics. The unrighteous are like straw, just blown away in the wind. The other path is the righteous, who keep thinking about God's teachings, like a tree with roots that go deep down. Imagine the roots going down as deep as the tree is high. In the summer, when the days are good, let your roots go down deep. To stay near the water is to meditate on God's law day and night. The righteous have a place to be grounded, to take root, to be nourished, to grow, and to be fruitful. Keep living in the Scriptures. Know the stories. Let the stories live through you. This picture of biblical meditation is not that of emptying our minds, but filling our minds with the things of God. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 13 about a seed with these words. When the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Thinking about the stories of Scripture and talking about the stories of Scripture keep us rooted. The one thing that is different between the righteous and the unrighteous is being rooted in the teaching and repeating it. Look more closely at this tree. Since uh, Sheila and I moved to Mississauga, 
Sheila and I have become gardeners. We have a little garden plot now. When we moved into our house, there was a garden plot. And we decided not just to put sod all over it, but to try to to tend now this garden space. We have learned a few things. And uh, what I did not realize before, how important is, is spacing is very important in the garden. Right? Carrots, how much space do they need? Well, Seeds need about an inch apart from each other. That's all. Just a very small space as you put those seeds in the ground. Just an inch. A small space so that they can grow healthy. Tomatoes, how much do they need? Well, a foot or maybe a foot and a half apart from other tomato plants so that they can grow healthy. They need a bit more space. How about watermelons? This year I have ventured out into watermelons. Our first watermelon is now about this big. It's growing. I'm watching it grow every day. How much space? Gardeners, more than a foot and a half, right? Yeah, probably about six feet distance away or seven feet distance away from from the other plants because those vines are going to spread and and those... Those watermelons are big and they, they just need more space to grow. Now, if you want to grow a peach tree or a pear tree, if you were to go down to Niagara-on-the-Lake, how far apart are those trees? Are they an inch apart like those carrots? No. 20 feet. You need about 20 feet of space apart from another tree. You need to make space in your garden. But think of the potential of that peach tree. Year after year, producing beautiful fruit every year, bearing fruit in season. How about us? How much space do we need to grow? How much space? Isn't that a, is that a weird question? Well, I'm not planted. I, I move around all the time. How much space do you need to grow? Listen to this description of the sinful person in Psalm 10. Psalm 10, 4 says this, In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Imagine that. No room. No space. Just just crowded over with weeds. Your garden, your life, your garden, your own personal garden is your thought life. What kind of room are you making? What kind of space are you making here in your garden plot? Are you planning to be a carrot? Or are you planning to be a peach tree? What do you want to grow up to be? What kind of space are you making in your life to grow? Why did you come here this morning? Maybe it's self-evident, but let's ask that question. Why did you come here today? Did you say, as you were walking here in this place, did you say, God, I want to make space for you. More than anything else in the world, I want to clear my mind. Not just now, but every day. And every night to receive the word, to reflect on the word, to live the word. Psalm 2 is also a pre-prayer. 
Its tone is decidedly different. But there is a common thread that moves. See if you can catch it. Because it's a very different tone as we think of the second pre-prayer. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Realize that Psalm 2 is a favorite psalm for the New Testament writers. Um, Psalm 23 is not quoted and uh, always referred to in the New Testament. It's not at all mentioned in the New Testament. But Psalm 2 is. In Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 4, he quotes Psalm 2. In Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 13, he quotes Psalm 2. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer to the Hebrews is quoting Psalm 1, talking and pointing to the majestic, to the majesty and the supremacy of Jesus. And in the book of Revelation, Psalm 2 is, is referred to three times as it talks about the triumphant reign of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Look at how the psalm starts in verse 1. Why do the people's conspire, and the people's plot in vain. Now, this word plot in chapter uh, chapter 2, look at that. In chapter 2, verse 1, you see that word plot. And the word meditate in chapter 1 are the same word in Hebrew. I never would have thought that. But this psalm takes us from the quiet reflection of a tree to troubled contemplation. Here in chapter 2, we see the people making every effort to be free from all of God's interference in their lives. They are plotting. They are thinking. They are reflecting on how they can get rid of God's interference And all they can do is keep thinking about that. How can we push God out of our lives? How can we push him out? They are plotting. They are thinking. And verse 2 says, it's not just the people, 
but the kings of the earth that stand against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, in Peter's sermon in the book of Acts, he quotes Psalm 2, and then he refers to, he refers to Herod and Pontius Pilate, who conspired against Jesus. Maybe you look at other leaders in world history, and you say, how did this political leader rise to such power on the world scene? We're not going to say any names, but in Isaiah 45, we read, this is what the Lord says to Cyrus, whose right hand I take to subdue nations before him. Here is a Persian king who does not know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is actually considered to be an evil king, but God has anointed him and appointed him to a place of leadership. So we get to verse 4 in Psalm 2, and we see that God laughs at the rulers of the world. What do you think of that? Maybe you've heard that phrase, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. It doesn't mean that God is uncaring or flippant, but it does mean that God's world is bigger. God's world is bigger than presidents and prime ministers. God's world is bigger than bosses, than your boss. God's world is bigger than celebrities. God's world is bigger than movie stars. We need to see the greatness of God in the midst of the competing bigness of the world. Even the rulers, even the influencers of this world desperately need a ruler. So there is someone greater. Look at verse 6. Here we read, God saying, But I have installed my king. My king is on Zion, the holy hill. I have appointed my king. Here is the one who rules the nations. King Jesus is never distressed by an upside-down world. Do you get distressed? King Jesus never is. He doesn't wring his hands and say, Oh no, what am I going to do now? King Jesus still reigns. King Jesus still loves. King Jesus is still holding your life together. King Jesus promises to be with you. The early church read Psalm 2 and they followed Jesus with an air of triumph and praise. Here's what Eugene Peterson writes. The gospel was not something private, just cultivated in the security of their own homes and hearts. It was public. It was the most powerful force in human history, shaping the destiny of nations as well as the souls of men and women. So... The issue this morning is not, will you meditate? The issue is, what are you going to meditate on? It's these two psalms considered to be an entryway or pre-prayer getting us ready to read the psalms. Over the next number of weeks, I know that Pastor Richard is going to be preaching through the psalms, but it's important to ground ourselves, first of all, in these first two. Now remember, as I mentioned before, 
Psalm 1, it's quiet. It it stills our distracted hearts. Do you need to be stilled? Psalm 2, it's vigorous. It counters a bullying world. We need both of them. Which one do you need today? Which one do you need to carry? Psalm 2 is strong with all the strength of a triumphant king. But as forceful as these words are, it ends with an invitation to the happy life. And look at that verse right at the very end in verse 12. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That's the invitation. Come and find your home in him. Will you meditate on these words today? Let's pray together. Lord, we want to carry your truth with us in our lives. Not just for a Sunday morning, but we want to meditate on you day and night. But we thank you that we can come here once again to find our anchor in you. May we put our roots down deep in your love. May we be filled with your presence in our lives. Make us your worshipers that our hearts might be stilled. And that we might rest in your presence. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.